Um, hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Jennifer Powell. I'm a higher trainee in general adult psychiatry and also I'm the trainee editor. So today um, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Chris Buller and Lindsay Britton-Robertson. And we're going to be talking today about safeguarding children. And this is to accompany their recent e-learning module, which was published a couple of months ago. And so Chris and Lindsay, hello and thank you. Um, really appreciate you joining me today. Do you want to start just by introducing yourselves and telling us a bit about how you became interested in this topic? Um, Chris, do you want to go first? Th- thanks, Jen. Um, well, I'm a consultant in general adult psychiatry and uh, I've been working in a community mental health team for over 20 years. Um, I work for the Mental Health Trust in Leeds and York, and many years ago there was uh, there was no named doctor, but it, uh, there was thought that this would be good for the organisation. Uh, but we had no CAM psychiatrist, no psychiatrist with who worked with children and adolescents. So I expressed an interest in uh, being the named doctor for safeguarding children, and and I think they fairly quickly pounced upon me, given that interest, to and um, um, was interviewed and became the named doctor, and that's what I've done for. Uh, many years now. So as well as my day job with the CMHT, I also work as part of the safeguarding team in the trust. So that's really, uh, Jen, where the interest has come from. Great. Thanks, Chris. And um, how about you, Lindsay? I'm a general nurse, midwife and health visitor background, and I came into the organisation as a named nurse for safeguarding children and then uh, moved into the head of safeguarding post as the children and adults agenda grew and I took on both. Um, But particularly I'm interested in the child background because that's where my operational work um, originally stemmed from. And I, I feel that our bread and butter in the organisation, because we mostly work with adults and have a minimal child-focused service. It was that parental mental illness and the impact of the child that was the the core areas of concern that staff were coming to us with, as well as that when they were working with um, service users who experienced abuse as children and and those types of cases as well. Um, So I might just jump in with the questions now, if if you're both ready. I know just to start off in your module, you speak a bit about serious case reviews. And Chris, I was wondering maybe if you wanted to tell us a bit about those and how often parental mental health problems are identified in those kind of reviews. I suppose just to explain a serious case review usually is it's a review that's triggered when a a child either um, dies or is seriously harmed. Uh, as a result of, of abuse or neglect, but there can be other, sometimes that's not always the case in, in terms of serious case reviews, but what some authors have done over the years is looked at, they've analysed obviously a whole batch of serious case reviews, and this has been done every few years to look at uh, particular aspects of, of, of the cases, um, and this has included issues such as mental health problems, uh, domestic violence, substance misuse, um, which when you're working in, in um, adult mental health, you come across in in some, not all cases, but certainly some cases, you come across plenty of mental health problems, but um, additionally, there can be substance misuse and domestic violence. In terms of the serious case reviews, 
within the module we refer to one, I suppose, uh, an analysis that it that took place over uh, on data over several years, and they found that in the area of around about over 50% of the cases of the serious case reviews, there were there were issues around mental health, and similarly, really, in about over half uh, there were issues of domestic violence and under half issues of substance misuse. So parental mental health has been identified as being of importance in these sort of very specialist reviews. Um, so, so, yes, it is something that we wanted to uh, focus on in the module and um, just just to really get, get people thinking a bit about the potential impact of parental mental Ill health on children in, in the uh, in the situation. I think as well, it's important to note that the um, the child practice review panel now um, oversees all of the cases and that allows a better oversight of what's going on nationally, a national picture. And I think one of the things that came out as well when we were looking at the data was the most cases particularly involved mental illness in the mother, um, but also the father. But particularly it was the mother who who was um, seen to be um you know, was particularly thematic in that finding. I think there's often historically as well been quite a focus on when people have thought of safeguarding children. They've thought about mothers, as you say, uh, perhaps Lindsay, with, with postnatal type illnesses, really. Um, but, and we wanted very much, I suppose, in the module to uh, not exclude that, but just to get people thinking more about general psychi- adult psychiatry settings, really. So, uh, not always parents, but but you know where where parents and um, siblings, grandparents in the home may have mental health difficulties, and these may be fairly acute or fairly chronic, or, um, and just you know get, trying to ensure people think about these just not as discrete problems around childbirth. It's it's going to be a very uh, acute or chronic problem, but in the kind of patients we see day to day in, in uh, adult mental health settings, really. And I was wondering when when we do encounter um, perhaps our parents who are having mental health difficulties um, and we do have some safeguarding concerns in mind about their children, what what kind of information should we be trying to gather at, at that initial stage? And have you got any advice about how we should we should go about it? I think it's really important that this information gathering is routine so that um, because what we find is that it's at the point of something happening or there being a risk that's observed and noticed. Um, is when people will come to us for advice, our staff in the organisation. And, and it's at that time that it's much harder to gather. So if it becomes very routine and people and service users are asked about the names of their children, their dates of birth, what school they go to, who else is involved as a, as a real sort of routine assessment data collection, then they're not in that position when there's risk of trying to gather that or somebody becomes more unwell um, and I think it's really important you know parents are we find very fearful about risk of losing their children and being asked those questions so the more normalizing of it that takes place the more that open discussion 
is there and that trust happens between practitioner and service user um, so that we're, you know they are reassured that there is support available and we're not looking at removing children you know as and that is a very last resort so it's about really normalizing and having having that information there so that when when things do start to go wrong we can make a referral to children's social care if needed and we're not having to scrabble around to try and find that information I think the other thing that in, in clinical practice you sometimes uh, come across is 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 you don't you're not always aware not just of the or, or practitioners aren't always aware of the names dates of birth the sort of you know the, the basic data, um, inform, demographic information on on the children but there may be other adults in the picture that we don't know about for example so I may have a, a female patient with, with children and then you suddenly find out or they tell you that there was a male who a relationship they're involved with and, and people don't always gather information about that in terms of the, the name and the nature of the relationship and, and also the quality of the relationship where there's, you know, does a person feel safe in the home? Is there any suggestion of domestic violence? Uh, and, and I suppose as well the needs, not just of the the mental health needs of the the person in front of you, but of the family as a whole, really, you know, the needs of the family, um, you know, if they're, if they're facing specific challenges, some thought as to how you may help them uh, with, with those, for example, debt or, or there may be other issues that need to be looked at. So a, a much more holistic, you know, gathering the information. Uh, I very much agree with Lindsay with what you're saying about you know, the situation where on a late one day people are slightly anxious about safeguarding children issues and nobody knows what these children's names are, dates of birth are, where, you know, the nursery they go to, the school they go to, when these are key aspects of information, really. And it is, you know, pe people are often reluctant to divulge information in a crisis, so it may be harder, or if you've lost contact, say, with a parent. So, yes, it's it's so much easier and, and more appropriate to do at the outset of, a, of, of, of care, really. It's always a Friday afternoon, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> no, it is always a Friday afternoon and, and, and trying to contact GPs to see if they've got information about the children, assuming the children are registered at the same practice as a parent, say, and, you know, none of this would have been necessary if, if at the outset they'd have got that basic information. I think also to stress it's important to revisit that information as well. So where we may have an absent father, have they come back and is there risk there, which sometimes there is if people reconcile with partners who've been violent. And also we had a particular um, serious case a few years ago, didn't we, Chris, where um, where the children had been in foster care. But during the long period of time the mother was known to us, they were repatriated to the family and uh, and that wasn't ever picked up by the adult mental health practitioners. So um, so they weren't aware that 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 lady had parenting responsibilities again that was really you know causing her a lot of stress in her life. Yeah, situations as you say change and need need to be revisited really. Um. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important message, isn't it? To um, just get the information early and make it routine when you can and to keep it up, up to date. I think obviously as well, part of the um, focus of the 
the assessment really by by the practitioners will be around not just about the impact of the person's psychiatric psychiatric or psychological difficulties um, on their day-to-day life and day-to-day functioning, but the impact on those around them and 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 I suppose roles they might have. So you know it may be you know roles as a parent. Um, um, you know, so so exploring that really the potential impact uh, of the mental health issues. You know, for, for example, really they may be, you know, they, they they may be historically able to do the, the the I don't know something like the shopping for the family and and the the the, the, the cooking and the you know getting the kids ready for school, dropping off, picking them up. But if it's a, a single parent with little family help and they're struggling with anxiety and depression and agoraphobia a lot of these base basics of functioning may be impacted so i think it's just thinking about not just how the person's difficulties makes them feel affects day-to-day function but thinking about the consequences for the children in the environment and you know that 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 can extend to something like uh, i remember a patient of mine years ago who was at a very irritable mood state when he was unwell um, and, and got quite hostile and aggressive to other family members. But there were young children in the home and, and you know, when he was hostile and aggressive and, and would perhaps, you know, throw chairs or damage things that, that, you know, children in the environment were at risk, really. They weren't they weren't his children, but they lived in that home. So it's thinking about who's exactly in the home and, and, and you know, what will be potentially what will they be exposed to or what might what needs might that might they not have met as a consequence of the this this person's mental health issues really so i think um in my experience one of the areas that can cause anxiety amongst teens is about um consent and sharing information and and when that necessarily you you necessarily have to get that consent and when you can share information without it so i wondered if either of you had any um advice on on that topic i think consent is an area that does cause a lot of anxiety among practitioners i think uh, you're right jen especially when you've spent a long time building up a therapeutic relationship with somebody to have to think about overriding that confidentiality that you've uh, you know when you've established trust but Ultimately, people have to think that the you know the children under the children's act, the welfare of the child is paramount. So, and also that you do have a duty to share information when you feel that there's risk, and it's perfectly acceptable and legal to share information and and disclose concerns um, when you have them, and that's reasonable and proportionate. And as long as there's effective record keeping and justification for the purpose, then that's absolutely everybody's responsibility to do that and ensure that the safety of the child is at the forefront of, of that care provision. I, I agree with you, Lindsay, and, and I think that, um, you know, we would we always encourage practitioners in the trust to talk to ourselves as a safeguarding team around these issues. Often you'd like, well, you'd like to... Uh, think that at the start there'll be some discussion of the case with an MDT format where you know in the in the in the locality where they work but we really sort of encourage 
practitioners to contact us to discuss issues around, you know, if there is issues around sharing information, um, you know, and and and, and documenting things. But it's, uh, I, I think, generally, you know, at the end of the day, the sort of the old maximum of the the, the, the welfare of the child is, uh, is is paramount, really, and 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 safety of the child. So. Um, you know, we're, we're happy to support staff with that. But, you know, the worst case scenario would be a member of staff just keeping hold of that information, not disclosing and not discuss, not discussing that non-disclosure with, with uh, you know, the, the professionals who could support them in thinking about that. That, that. that could be quite a risky place to be for the practitioner if they, they don't disclose and don't discuss it either with, with uh, you know, with, with practitioners, I guess, in the trust, really. I'm not saying it's, you always have to disclose everything, and and but there is really the framework for that, and uh, you know the again the Caldecott principles are helpful, but I think discussion with within with the safeguarding team would always encourage practitioners to do that because it can be documented then, and either a decision to disclose or not to disclose, but it's been documented. There's been a discussion really. And that's what we like to see, isn't it? We like to see that working being shown in records when we're um, having to undertake an investigation so that we can understand what was shared and, and when and, and and for what reason. Yes, I mean, I, I've been party to probably like yourself, Lindsay, to so many reviews where you go through records in, in uh, a lot of detail, really, to, to see what was documented when and you know what discussion was there had and so yes it's it's sort of often documentation is a key like in many things really yeah because in my experience there can be quite a lot of concern from practitioners that um sharing information or making referrals about safeguarding is going to worsen their their patient's mental health and also that can be tied up in concerns about risk, self-harm, suicide. Um, do you have any suggestions as as to how that might be sort of um, alleviated or, or, or ways to make that, that easier for teams? I think it does go back to what I was saying in the earlier question, Jen, about um, you know, people have a lot of worry about their children being removed and it's those conversations, you know, uh, but also that it is, the practitioner's responsibility and confidentiality can't always be uh, assured. And, you know, when there's safeguarding reasons, it's having those conversations early in the relationship and that understanding that sometimes, you know, we do have to share information for safeguarding reasons so that people are really clear about, you know, where that where that sits in in terms of responsibility on the practitioner. But, you know, children are not removed lightly and it's all it is all about trying to get support in and that good engagement at, at the earliest possible stages. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be able to say that it's always possible to alleviate service users' fears and, and for it not to impact on, on professional relationships. Sometimes there have been occasions in my practice when it when it has done, but, you know, I think there's there's a greater proportion of cases where the service users, when you when you sat them down and talked it through, what the concerns are, why your concerns, well, they may not be wholly happy with it, they may not agree with it, but I think if you've been open and honest with them about why your, what your concerns are on the basis for that, I think then 
I think you can do no more as a practitioner. Um, and, you know, I always try and emphasize that really it's about trying to support them in terms of, um, you know, with their mental health issues, but also with the wider family, that you know, and the children um, to make sure their needs are met, make sure they're safe. And but it um, it can be very different from conversation to conversation. And I think. The more you've known the patient, perhaps the more experienced you are, that, that, that perhaps it's slightly easier, but not always. Lindsay, I know we mentioned earlier that things tend to happen on a Friday afternoon. Um, well, if, if you do have really urgent safeguarding concerns which come up, um, what kind of options are there for that sort of immediate help? Um, I mean, if you're in a real emergency situation and you feel that there's risk to a child or there's a child that you suspect that is at risk that you can't see for whatever reason, then you can always call the police and they have they have powers um, to support you in that and, you know, gain entry, uh, remove children where that where that's deemed necessary. So if you're in a real emergency situation, that's your first line of contact so children's social care um have an emergency duty team out of hours as well but um but the urgent response would usually lie with the police in that situation um but every organization also has a safeguarding lead and we are there on friday afternoons to take calls if people just need to run something by us so we'd always recommend that again people talk things through with their safeguarding lead but it isn't um you know, in an emergency situation, the police would usually be a best course of action. Um, Chris and I often allude to a, a case when we're talking about these situations in training where um, where somebody did go to visit a family and uh, they wouldn't allow access to see the child. And unfortunately, they arranged to visit the next day, but it was too late for that child. So we would always say, you know, don't be afraid. We're there to work in a multi-agency way and support each other. So you know if you feel you need to do that do that and you're better to to be um to be safe in those situations and get the support from your colleagues than, than to leave it yeah yes and i know the case that you're referring to lindsay i think um adult mental health practitioners certainly the section 12 approved psychiatrists and um, in terms of time scales often think about time to get a you know, if, they, if, if they're thinking it's likely we're going to go down the route of a mental health act assessment, well, it, you know, potentially it takes time to get two psychiatrists and uh, or two doctors together and um, and, uh, and uh, an approved mental health practitioner now to do a mental health act assessment. And that's why potentially I think in the case Lindsay's referring to, it was left to the following day. But of course, the time skills don't always have to be governed by the time it takes to do a full mental health act assessment. And I think, as Lindsay quite rightly says, um, you know, if you're that concerned um, about children in the home and your parents, your patient's mental health, um, you can contact the police. I remember when I first became a consultant many years ago and a patient who is still under my care now, who was in at home with two young children, she wouldn't let us in. We, we were pretty clear. We thought she was quite unwell. The lady with schizophrenia. The children were crying. We were concerned. And the police attended and, and ensured that we got access and we assessed her. And, and the children were fine. They were safeguarded. And, and mum was 
I think probably admitted at that point and and interestingly many years down the line I've I've met the children now who've grown up I'm, I'm still a patient under my care so you know it doesn't always add, we don't want things to get to escalate and I think that um you know there are certainly situations where you cannot wait to get a warrant you can't you 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 know you can't wait to get a, a group of professionals together you need to be getting their contact and the police for them to um ensure really the children the home are safeguarded particularly where you've got you know a parent who will not let you on the premises to 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 see yourself you know often in the module there's a lot of emphasis are put on seeing the child seeing the child seeing the home situation assessing the parents mental health and putting all those together really yeah, you're right, Chris, and we like to equip our practitioners to work in a highly supportive but highly challenging way as well, so they don't feel afraid to ask those questions and is it okay if I come in and to be assessing the environment and to see the children and to ask, you know, those wider questions about what's going on and to be really challenging in a respectful um, and supportive way so that there's that open and honest conversation going on. Thanks. I think that's really good advice. I know sometimes I've, it can feel, I think, um, that you might be overreacting or you're being a bit dramatic by calling the police or it's a little bit intimidating to do so. But that's a reassuring advice that if your gut is saying that's what you should do, then then you shouldn't wait. Um, Chris, you mentioned there a case with um, someone with schizophrenia. And I know you mentioned in the module a little bit about specific issues around psychosis was there any that you wanted to highlight here yes Jed, i suppose i would say i mean I've, I've the work of a general adult psychiatrist in the cmht you see a lot of patients with psychosis be it people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia schizoaffective disorder or mania with psychosis not uh, plenty of my um, patients with these conditions don't have children uh, plenty do, um, and and plenty with children are are are, are good parents. Um, but there are symptoms and behaviours that are associated with these conditions, particularly I suppose in patients who have an acute relapse, or sometimes in the more sort of chronic states really that that can impact on children in the environment. Um, I, I suppose one of the cases that has always stayed with me over the years was of a, a patient who experienced auditory hallucinations and this was of he would hear the voice of a little girl and he this little girl would speak to him and he always used to say when he was particularly unwell um, that the voices would usually tell people, him to assault people and and he would also sometimes say that if he ever saw this little girl who was talking to him he would hurt her. Now, thankfully, he he didn't hurt a child, but it sort of brings home the he was a potentially a risk to both adults and children when he was unwell. So, again, in this module, we we try not just, as I said earlier, focus purely on parents. And I suppose when people are acutely psychotic, there can be a whole range of psychopathology around their hallucinations, their delusions. And these can impact on their day-to-day -day functioning, but they also can specifically impact on children as well. I, I, I mentioned, I suppose, people with hallucinations where there may be commands to hurt people, 
and and I mean the number of delusions, the nature of delusions is just so broad, really, in terms of the you know the content in particular, really. And I suppose again, a, a, a parent um, having a delusion that a child in the home is suffering and they need to put them out of their misery, or the child is is not their child; it's it's possessed, um, and and. Uh, so you need, I think, as a clinician to be really thoughtful around the, the nature of the person's psychotic symptoms and the content of them as well, really. Um, and also the behaviours. I've got some patients when they're psychotic who become their day to day functioning becomes very poor. They're very withdrawn. Others who can become very agitated, irritable, hostile, uh, hostile towards partners in the home. Um, and again, um, this may place the children within the home at risk, really. Um, you know, the, the um, like I said, it's very, I, I suppose sometimes there are a degree of what you can predict. If you've got a patient who's had multiple relapses uh, and say when they've and multiple admissions to a PICU environment, you're... Uh, you're fairly you would be fairly unhappy about them having periods of untreated psychosis really um and, and the emphasis would be the focus would be on keeping them well as it would with all patients obviously but um not exposing the family to periods of untreated illness um i can think of what one patient um i had who was on a community treatment order and a depot antipsychotic um and he was on these treatments because he had no insight. And when he was unwell, he would become very assaultative very quickly. And uh, basically, in the time I got to know that he was deteriorating, often police would be at the home already because he was he would become so disruptive and, and, and aggressive. Now, in that home were, was was um, over years, were increasing number of children, a wife and increasing number of children, really. He, in the, he's got three children now. Um, but thankfully, the sort of the, the community treatment order and the depots kept him well and, and being able to continue his role as a parent. But him in an unwell state, it would have been difficult to see how that would have continued. So th- th- there are, you know, there are cases where you, uh, as a clinician, y- you are acutely aware of the impact of the psychotic illness on, on, on you know, on your patients and, you know, particularly in terms of caregiving, really. Um and, and and sadly, I have patients who have a chronic illness where I think they, they struggle, have struggled really to maintain relationships and, and contact with children because of their illnesses. So I think I'm having a very much a, a, an understanding of the, you know, the symptoms and behaviour associated with psychosis and the impact potentially on, on, on those in the household it is, is vital as, a, as an adult psychiatrist, really. I think you're absolutely right, Chris, to, to reiterate the point that not all um, parents with mental illness pose a risk. But another thing to consider uh, may also be when it's longer term or more chronic, that the caring responsibilities in the family may fall to the child or the young person um, to look after that person or other family members. And that even if there isn't risk, um, that still may be a factor that does impact on that that child's ability to be a child really and uh, um, in the absence of all those responsibilities so uh, to recognize that 
you know, they are entitled to an assessment as a young carer if needed and to access those services to give them that support. Thank you. And just sort of moving on. Um, and this is one of the other things that I think comes up and sometimes people uh, feel uncertain about what to do is uh, when people disclose abuse that's historical by any sort of degree of time. Um, so I was wondering if you might have any suggestions on how um, practitioners respond to that and whether they need to, to act. And I would say, Jen, that this is an, uh, an uncommon area of advice that we're asked for in the organisation because of those adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, as we refer to them, that impact much later in life and require people then to seek a level of support because those are, you know, still still affecting them in later life and into adulthood. Um, from our point of view, it is about really enabling and working with that service user as to what they want to do with that disclosure. Obviously, there's a, the therapeutic side of the work to help them to recover and deal with what's happened to them, um, but also to look at whether they want to prosecute or seek you know, criminal proceedings around what's happened to them. But from a safeguarding point of view, I suppose our key questions are, you know, is there still a risk out there to others or to yourself as a, as a service user from that person or those people who, you know, who, who affected you so badly? So, so those are the key questions, really. And it may well be that somebody's experienced abuse as a child and their abuser has, has long since died or maybe, you know, very unwell and no longer a risk to others. Um, but it's important to recognise that that person may also still be, I don't know, a, a teacher or in a professional role if it was, you know, if it happened in a school or or a family member who has grandchildren or other family members who may they may still pose a risk to. So it's asking those wider questions really about what risk is still is still around and and dealing with that. And sometimes uh, we go back to the consent issue as whether we have, you know, reasonable cause to override consent and share information with the police or whether they may just be some intelligence that um, other people may have shared similar stories, for example, um, uh, that the police may want to build build a picture as part of a, a jigsaw of information that they have, whether or not that leads to a prosecution. That makes sense. Place that would rely on getting specific information about the perpetrator, would it names and things like that? It does, and and uh, you know sometimes people are just not ready to share that, and it, if that's the case, it's just a matter of continuing to work with them and trying to reach that point. But yeah, you're quite right. Without without that information, there's not much we can we can go forward with until they feel ready. Thanks. That's really useful, Lindsay. Um, We've already sort of mentioned a little bit about um, thinking more broadly and wider risks. And I know in the module you also touch a bit upon things like child exploitation, child sexual exploitation. And I wondered um, if maybe either of you wanted to mention a bit about that and how that might link to parental mental health. Um, so... Uh, I suppose a, a definition I've found from the NSPCC is that child sexual exploitation is a type of sexual abuse. 
um, and a child, a young person can be exploited by get, being given things like money, status, affection or, or drugs in some cases in exchange for performing sexual activities. And, and there's a lot of grooming involved in these cases um, where, the, the, you know, it's felt initially like it's a loving relationship and there may be um singled out to be felt to be made to feel special or particularly wanted by this person who then goes on to to exploit them and, and children don't necessarily recognize that they're being abused or that it's a sexual abuse and sometimes in these cases there's also trafficking involved as well um so i suppose that's the def- definition also um it can be linked with with gang activity and can sexual exploitation as well as criminal activity. So so in terms of criminal exploitation, children can be trafficked or manipulated or coerced into committing crimes instead of sexual activity. So the two are kind of interlinked in terms of those grooming behaviours, but for for different purposes. So within criminal activities, it can be um, uh, county lines or selling drugs between um, are being used for those purposes. Uh, sexual, it can also be around sharing images as well as direct sexual activity. So there's there's lots of strands to it really, uh, and being passed between strange, um, strangers in the context of what appears to be a relationship. So that initial trust is built in order to exploit somebody for be it sexual or criminal purposes. And I think I think we're getting really really. Um, uh, aware of the use of language around these young people as well, because within case reviews, etc., it's been identified that the, the vulnerable young people can be labelled as sex workers, perpetrators, criminals, and we lose that recognition that actually, you know, the, the, this is a person in need of protection. And and sometimes these cases do involve exploitation between young people. It's not always adult to child. Sometimes it's child on child as that, you know, those um, those relationships build up and young people are then coerced into um, coercing others. And it's a knock on effect. I, I suppose the only thing I wanted to add was some, sometimes, um, you know, we have service users who are quite um, because of their mental health, health issues or substance misuse or relationship issues. Um, are struggling with their parenting and, and, you know, you have staff going into the home, say, community mental health team staff, um, who may, I suppose in passing really, uh, become aware of some of the uh, signs of, of, uh, of, of CSE really. And, and I suppose we're wanting them to be aware of these issues and, and if they do come across something that that concerns them or, or makes them think about this that perhaps that this is still an important part of their job is to to be um you know talking with a parent if they've got any concerns about uh their their teenage son or daughter say and if they have sort of again thinking perhaps bringing it to the safeguarding team to discuss and and think how we can support the parent and also really highlight our concerns about the child, you know, really with children's social care, say. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, 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 
you know, 10, 20 years ago as a general adult psychiatrist, you wouldn't necessarily, we weren't even thinking probably along those lines anyway in safeguarding arenas. But in, in over the last decade, it really has become an, an important, it has been recognised, I think, Lindsay, hasn't it, as an, an important issue and, and, you know, where children are being uh, exploited and abused and, you know, it ruins their lives. And actually, if we don't recognise it as soon as possible, the sad fact is, is that the, the children will be entering adult mental health services in time because that sort of trauma and, and, and use and abuse really will impact on their mental health. Um, so it's trying to break that cycle, really. And I think as services, you know, we're really recognising that adolescents are a real vulnerable group in, in themselves. And previously, we've thought of child protection as involving younger children, possibly. But adolescent neglect is a real growing area of... <laughs> Of recognition so um so it's whether that parent can instill boundaries and does know where their child is and are they going missing or do they have a different group of friends is there are they receiving expensive gifts and and being able to to you know manage challenging behaviors with their children or or whether they have that within them if they're suffering themselves and they're unwell because the other thing we can do is if we encourage practitioners, if, if they feel out of their depth with this, not only will they get support with it from, you know, the safeguarding team and their trust, but they'll also be able to pass on information. I'm sure, you know, if it doesn't reach the sort of threshold of feeling there needs to be a referral, say, there may be support and information that can be passed back to the parent. But it's, it's the, the key thing is just being aware of these sorts of issues, really. And I think, as Lindsay says, Many years ago, child protection was very much around babies and toddlers, small children, but it has been recognised. And his, historically as well, Lindsay, as you say, teenagers who were felt to be out of control, they were very much, um, there was a sort of a pejorative view of them, really. Oh, well, they were just out of control and, and you know, you 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 know, you can't help these sort of young people and, and um, uh, you know, but there really is a focus in recent years on, on, on recognising it for what it is, really, a lot of these issues mm-hmm. uh, as children being targeted and abused. Um, and also how that then moves into young adulthood as well. And if, um, you know, if, if people have a, a person has a learning disability for example how they're vulnerable perhaps a bit longer in their lives and that transition bet- from children's to adult services and those conversations so that you know there's recognition of risk and ongoing support throughout that that process is really key so i think there's something there about um just having these things in your in your mind as a pr- practitioner keeping your eyes and ears open and, and thinking about them and um, sharing with the safeguarding team if you do have concerns and feel a little bit out of your normal comfort zone with it. And I'm I'm thinking because another thing referenced in your module module was about domestic abuse, and I'm sure you could do an entire two-hour podcast on that. But um, any sort of key points on on that front about how this might relate to um, practitioners working with with families and children. I'm, I'm sure Lindsay is probably going to follow me on with, uh, in my answer, but the vignette as well in the module, it, it, I won't go into it in detail because practitioners will complete it, but it's a, it, it was deliberately um, pitched really that 
Um, it wasn't perhaps what initially the practitioner in the vignette was expecting to find, really. And I think that, again, domestic violence is something that it may be staring you in the face, but often it's something that you've got to specifically ask about and ask the person on their own and, and ensure our practitioners as well. Uh, you know, we see a lot in CMHT of, of service users who have suffered absolutely awful domestic violence perpetrated by one or more partners and the amount of trauma that causes psychological trauma and, and consequences for them and, and, and the, the wider family is, is, you know, highly significant. And although, you, you know, you're, you're right that we could have had a whole module on domestic violence, it, it would have felt, felt wrong to actually, again, not actually have at least some inclusion of it really as an issue that is a, is a bread and butter issue for general adult psychiatry. I think, I think um, as well, Chris, it's um, it's difficult sometimes to ask the question when somebody, you know, if you're not, especially when we've been working under COVID and doing Skype calls, etc., and Zoom calls to people to be able to establish whether that person is safe enough to be able to ask those challenging questions and not having that insight into what's going on in the home is is quite challenging. But I think. Um, it is it is really important that we do ask those questions early on because we know that um that people experience a lot of abuse before disclosing so i know say there's some safe live re- research around uh, people have up to 50 incidents of domestic abuse before receiving effective help and that can be over uh, you know at least a couple of years so the more people are asked about it, the more, you know, we're likely to get people to disclose and put in support earlier. And and I think sometimes people don't recognise what domestic abuse is, especially in the absence of it being a physically violent relationship. So where there's control and coercion, it's about exploring whether people feel fearful in their relationship or in the home rather than, you know, them being subject to physical abuse because it's not all doesn't always look like that thank you both so um one one final question that was on my mind was um just to ask you briefly about early help can i just say something more on that yeah yeah go for it so just to say that if people do disclose abuse then um practitioners should be undertaking a dash risk assessment where they can then identify how much risk that is presenting at that time and refer on to a MARAC, a multi-agency risk assessment conference if needed. Lindsay, I thought when you talked about um, about the disclosure of historical abuse, I thought you... Oh, I mean to say it's not an uncommon thing that we encounter. So um, I suppose it's important to say, um, so, um, so in terms of... Uh, historical disclosures it is something that we encounter on a fairly regular basis that when we're working with service users who have uh, you know ongoing effects of what's happened to them in childhood um, now sitting within adult services and, and we do see a lot of patients with what we call complex trauma who've been through abuse in their childhood or teen years um, they make up a, 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 a a big part of the sort of day-to-day job of adult mental health services, seeing people who've been through trauma such as that. So, 
Yes, it is common. So just one final question from me um, was just a little bit about early help and what that means and, and what kind of support they can offer people. Um, Lindsay, maybe you wanted to answer that. So I think I think there's a perception that early help may mean um, families where there are children under five or younger children. But what it actually means is intervening early in the life of a problem to stop it from becoming a risk. So so where as a practitioner, you may identify that there's complex needs, maybe need of financial support, um, like we said earlier about young caring responsibilities, it may be a housing need, uh, parental mental illness, substance misuse. You know, the earlier we can support families with those issues, you know, the better we are able to prevent it from escalating into a risk or becoming, you know, a lot more of a worry or becoming out of control. So that's what early help is there to support and, and looking at working in a multi-agency way to identify what family interventions are needed and what family supports needed for the whole family um, to, to, to stop situations becoming you know, much more problematic. And, and, you know, we need to recognise that the whole family and the Think Family ethos is, is required because there may be older adults with vulnerabilities in the house. It may not just be children. And um, what are the whole family's needs in a really holistic way so that you know everybody has their needs met thanks lindsay um so i think we are uh, probably running out of time for today but before we do wrap things up i wondered if either of you have any final um thoughts reflections or advice that you'd like to uh, just end on i think they were um a few key points that we wanted to make. Um, I think the um, going back to really one of the first things we discussed was about information gathering and again just encouraging uh, practitioners to record the basic information about um, who's in the household really um, in addition to your your patient, whether there's a partner or, well, well the, you know, partner, children, parents, you know, would be grandparents, but obviously first and foremost, the names, dates of birth of the children, these sorts of school or nursery they go to, who else is involved. It is so essential we have that information on file with people accessing the service. So, it, you know, when or if it's needed, then this is something that we can, that is there for practitioners, really. Uh, and again, the, the, the stress and the importance of record keeping, um, it, it's important in everything we, we obviously do, but, but it feels particularly important, um, in this area. And I suppose the last point I, I wanted to make, and I'm sure Lindsay would agree with me about constantly keeping the child in mind really what is it like being a child in this household and again if you, you you know i would always i particularly enjoy doing home visits and and going if we have a 
someone who's referred, who's got children, I always encourage I'll go out with practitioners or, you know, practitioners will go out and see them in the home, the, the patient in the home environment to see what it is, you know, if we can see them, see the children, see the home environment, you'll have a much better feel of what what, what uh, life is like in that home. And, and, you know, often patients can feel a lot more uh, comfortable in their own home, um, you know, being visited there. Doesn't have to be on the first assessment appointment if they're not keen, but there's no doubt actually visiting them. I think in the home to see what the home situation's like is particularly important when there are children in the environment. I think that's really good advice, Chris, and to maintain that um, professional curiosity, you know, asking those questions, you know, what is it like for this child in this house, and and seeking supervision as well, and reflecting on that. Your work with families on a regular basis with your safeguarding team or with a line manager is really important and and also I think about engagement and what that you know what that parent's behavior is telling you so if they're very hard to engage and hard to reach you know what can we do to improve that so that we are getting a true picture of what's going on in that family is really important and and if they disengage um, not to just simply discharge them but to to consider what the wider needs are and how we can best, you know, work with them um, as as much as possible. I agree, Lindsay, about the point around discharge. I would feel very uncomfortable discharging a, you know, a disengaged parent really from the service uh, where there were concerns about their mental health and, and, and that could potentially impact on the children. Um, I would feel quite it wouldn't be something that was done lightly, really, and not without some attempts, some other attempts to uh, acquire information, really, about how things were for the parent and within that household. I do feel you have to go the extra mile when there's children in the environment, really, as a practitioner. Well, thank you to you both. Um, I think that's been a really interesting, really valuable discussion. I hope that people have found it um very useful for their practice i know i have uh learned a lot from you both today and thanks for sharing the anecdotes as well i think that helps um just to create a bit of context um so just remember if you are a subscriber can also do uh, the short mcq test at the end of this podcast and um that means you can download certificate and cpd points um, but thanks again. I was talking to Lindsay Britton-Robertson and uh, Dr. Chris Buller. So thank you and goodbye.